Let's go around the horn, and I'll assume if you give me a go, you've got no instrumentation problems. Booster? Go flight. Retro? Go flight. Fido? Go flight. Control? Telcom? Go. TNC? Econ? Capcom? Go. Surgeon? Go. ONC? Go. AFC? NIO? Go. Network? Go. You got everything up? Go. Hello. I'm Ian Christie, and this is Terranauts. As we are fond of saying on Terranauts, there are lots of ways to get to space without ever leaving the ground. My next guest has spent a career exploring several of those options. Ewan Reed has helped design space equipment. He has worked installing and testing that equipment on the space shuttle, and he has worked in mission control supporting the equipment while it was on orbit. Now, he has started his own company, Mission Control Space Services, that aims to help humans go back to the moon and even farther into the solar system. Ewan Reed, welcome to Terranauts. Hi, Ian. Thanks for having me. So, so did you grow up thinking that you were going to work in the space program? I wouldn't say specifically when I was when I was young. I, I certainly always liked engineering and had, had that mindset, wanted to solve problems, uh, understand things, fix things, build things. And I, I liked exploration. Uh, I think in my mind then it was more traditional. It was ships sailing around the world to discover new lands and climbing up mountains or into caves and things like that. Um, but it wasn't until I had an opportunity um, partway through my university career to work at a space company that I really, I guess, felt for the first time or experienced that that space is that that new frontier is that kind of combination of, of exploration and engineering and and I think once I had a taste for it after that there there was no going back it was going to be space from now on right so so full disclosure we both uh, worked at Neptech Design Group for a while now I started when I was in grad school just before I finished but you started even earlier in your career than that. Yeah, that's right. I, I, I worked a term um, partway through my, my career and, and was uh, my, my academic career, that is, and was given a chance to to go back and work several subsequent summer terms and, uh, you know, was exposed right off the bat uh, to, you know, the, the most exciting stuff in, in space, I would say, you know, the, the, the crewed exploration program, the space shuttle and the space station. So what did you start out doing? The very beginning, I was uh, the most junior member of a team of about, say, 10 or 12 people that was doing uh, operations for the space vision system. So, okay, so what does operations mean? Um, operations is, is everything, I guess, to do with using the technology. And so NEPTEC at the time was designing you know, cutting edge <clears throat> systems, uh, in this case, to, to help uh, the astronauts uh, build the space station. Right. And so they're designing the hardware and the software and they're providing that to NASA. And then we had this team of people that would do things like train the astronauts on how to use it, right. uh, test the hardware uh, on the space shuttle, uh, right. design the software and the databases for each mission. And then when the mission was actually happening, go and sit in mission control and, and support those activities. Right. So so as a as a student, what what parts of that were you? actually do? Well, as a student, I was, you know, doing the most exciting parts, which were looking at really large databases of, of numbers and making sure right. that the numbers matched up and, and things like that. So uh, the team was super busy. They, right. they, you know, were often working 60, 70, 80 hours a week, uh, right. week after week after week. Right. They all had a mission that they had to focus and lead, uh, but they each had to support other people's missions. And right. so there was a lot of cross-checking of numbers and validating things, going into the lab and, 
and testing out a, a database or a piece of software. Right. So the most menial and, and simple tasks would fall to the most junior member of the team, right. and that was me. So the things that, that the team was actually doing, though, was essentially building the International Space Station. Right? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I, even at the time, I, I was aware of that in the sense that I felt a pride at being involved. And even though it was the most simple and mundane thing, you know, is this a one? Yes, it's a one. Is this a zero? Yes, it's a zero. Right hour after hour, I realized that someone had to do that. And if it right. wasn't me, it may be someone else. Right. And, and so sure, it didn't bring a lot of special creativity, but I was part of that massive pyramid right. of people. So, so we talked before to Bill Mackey, who was there getting ready to help build the space station. And I've told stories about my time, uh, you know, when we were testing the same system uh, and realizing just how accurate we had to make it. But to put it in perspective, when you're doing this, there were like five or six shuttle missions a year. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's only 10 people. There's five or six missions you have to get ready for. Each mission takes months, three, oh, six, yeah. seven yeah. months. So there's all these overlapping missions. And as you say, uh, you're leading one mission and, and figuring out actually how to do the mission and how to write the procedures for the astronauts at the same time as you're helping on three other missions. That's right. Because uh, just to describe it, so eventually, though, you got to the point where you're working in mission control. Right. Yeah, absolutely. It was a little bit later once I, you know, finished my 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 degrees and and gone back to NEPTEC. Right. Got a chance to come back and work full time. And again, that was an interesting scenario where uh, initially I, I I wasn't able to come back. There was a bit of a downturn, and then right. I got a call saying, "Hey, we need you now. Come." And right. when I got there, it, it was basically, "Hey, we need you, and and you know, you need to go work right now on on the shuttle program." And right. so I I started doing some electrical design, but I also did a lot of, of real-time operations. And so right. that meant going down to Kennedy Space Center to do testing, but it also meant going down to Houston to support the missions. And I started doing that right away. Um, you know, my first sim where, uh, you know, you're down there doing a, a fake mission with fake right. data and fake right. problems. Right. And then the next thing would be to go down and sit on console beside someone else. And, and it's right. a real mission, but you're just training and watching. So they call it flight following. That's right. And then um, eventually I got a chance to be down there on my, my first mission. Right. And, and so, you know, when, when you do that, it's 24 hour a day, yep. usually three shifts, 24 hour a day for a week or two weeks at a time. So yeah. uh, it can, it's, it's quite a lot of work to uh, support a mission. It is. And it's, it's a really different kind of experience in the sense that, uh, the, you know, what they call orbit one. So that first eight hour shift uh, from the perspective of the astronauts right. may or may not align with our day here on Earth. Right. Right. So orbit one may start at 3 a.m. Right. Um, and so you may end up working a shift. So you're on the third shift, the planning shift, they call it, because nominally the astronauts are asleep. Yes. That may or may not be overnight. It may be in the middle of the day right. and there may not be much going on. Right. Um, and so you never know kind of what well, you know in advance what shift you'll be on, but you don't know what time it's going to be. And um, you don't know what that's going to happen, you know, when you're going to wake up, when you're going to be having dinner, what you're right. going to be doing and, you know, right. what the, those two or three weeks are going to be like for you. So so when we started in mission control for NEPTEC, when I, when I was first there, when the when the new space shuttle control room uh, opened, mm-hmm. um we worked actually in what they called the back room. So we were with the robotics guys actually sitting uh, with a rack of equipment um, sitting next to their consoles. But by the time you were doing it, we had moved to uh, something called the mission evaluation room, right? That's right. So that was a much larger room. Uh, I, I, you know, I don't know exactly how big it is, but it's actually bigger than the room, the, the main flight control room that you'd see right. on TV. Right. And we were in the very back row, which is interesting. We actually shared a, a console with a team that was involved with the the actual propulsion, the real rocket scientists, right. Right. because we weren't needed during launch because our right. system didn't turn right. on then. And they, and they were needed afterwards. Right. 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 And so right. we would share that. And what was always interesting to me is under a, a, a piece of clear plastic on the desk were 
was a full schematic of, of the actual like propellant and, and right. rocket system, right. which I had no clue what any of it meant, but it right. was an interesting uh, so, thing So this, the scene would be pretty much like what you see on television in the flight control room, though. Big room full That's of right. consoles, some, somebody who directs the whole operation in the middle. Yeah. Uh, and and you you know you you talk to him, but you also listen to the loops so you can hear what's actually going on on orbit. Yeah, absolutely. A, a really interesting uh, dynamic arrangement. The people around us, uh, the consoles nearby, were typically ones that we worked you know closely with. So there was the the, the thermal protection system, you know, imagery coordinator. There right. was uh, you know roles like that, and and some of the the folks supporting the Canada Arm as right. well. And then yeah, we'd be listening in our ear to a whole bunch of conversations at once, somewhere right. between maybe five and 20, depending on what was going on. And many of those, as we call them, voice loops or channels, uh, we would be able to listen to, but not talk on. Right. Uh, there was no way that I was allowed to talk to the astronauts in orbit. No, but no, I no. certainly Only one person gets that, that job. That's correct. But I, I certainly would be expected to be listening. Right. And what was interesting is every once in a while, you know, they'd be using the system and maybe they encountered a problem. Maybe they hit the wrong button or there, right. there was a, a problem with the software or whatever. Right. And so, you know, they would call down say, you know, hey, Houston, we, we've had a bit of a problem on step 10 and we're not really sure, you know, can, can you look into that? So I start scrambling, figuring, okay, what am I going to do to say in response? And in the meantime, the, you know, the Capcom who hears that calls down to, you know, Inco and says, hey, can you tell me about, you know, step, step right. 12 with right. LCS? And, and Inco calls down to maybe Tick and says, hey, what, you know, what are we, and then they right. call down and eventually it gets to me and right. I'm ready with my answer. Yeah, by the time, because they, it's by the time they get to you, you sound right. like a genius because you've had 10 <laughs> minutes to figure And then I hear it go all the way back up the chain yes. Yes. and uh, eventually the astronaut that's, on, on that, board fixes it. That, that's interesting. So what, what, so this, to be clear though, we've switched gears here because we're not talking about the space vision system anymore. We're talking that's about um, what we call the laser camera system. Um, which was basically a, a camera that NASA used to inspect the outside of the space station to make, or sorry, outside of the space shuttle to make sure there weren't any cracks or holes in it after launch, right? Yeah, that's right. Uh, you know, there after the the unfortunate Columbia disaster, um, right. You know, the the the, the 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 they found out that it was a piece of foam that fell off the large orange external tank that holds the the liquid uh, rocket fuel, and that's what caused damage to the wing leading edge. And and when the the space shuttle came back, uh, you know, reentry into Earth's atmosphere, it overheated and, and eventually broke up, causing right. the the catastrophic uh, end of the mission. So NASA needed a system to be able to inspect at a really high level of resolution. Um, potential damage. And at the time, NAPTEC had already created a laser camera with another purpose in mind. And they basically put their hand up and said, well, we can do that. And turns out it was essentially mandated that that sensor would be used on every subsequent mission. And so, you know, that that was cutting edge technology that no one else in the world could develop and and the team at NAPTEC could. And and so we provided that every mission. And it meant that some missions were quiet in the sense that if there was you know, nothing of interest in terms of damage on, right. on liftoff, then you would be there monitoring, making sure the system was operational, uh, when, you know, uh, on standby, ready to go if it needed to be. And in case there was a, say, a micrometeorite object yes. that may cr- cause damage. But if that didn't arise, then, then you know, the space shuttle would come back and there'd be no issue. But on other times, there would be another damage similar yes. to what happened on Columbia. Yeah. And that would get everyone pretty uh, excited. Yeah, well, I remember seeing uh, somebody asked me, uh, you know, there was a mission coming up and they asked me if it was going to be exciting. And I said, no, boring is good Yes, when you're working in the space program. Boring is what we're And then, of course, that was one of the missions where there was some damage and it was the last thing except boring. But that's right. Uh, yeah. So you really hope to go for a mission where where all you did was review routine procedures and check on the health of the system. But but when that didn't happen, um, you know, what was it like in MCC? First of all, how many people were working on console at that time on, on LCF? Um, we would typically have... Um, 
six people supporting the beginning of the mission. And those would be three people doing what we called operations. Yes. And so they're supporting the health of the system, uh, the astronauts as they use it. So they'd be one on each shift. So six people, right. two, two, three teams of two. Uh, yeah, that's right. And so the the ops people were one person, and yes. then somewhere else in a different room oh, yeah. was the analyst. And so they were the people that were looking at the data when it would come down from the system. Oh, okay. And so at the after the first few days of the mission, once they they checked out the system, turned it on, tested it, make sure it works, and then potentially used it in yes. the context of a, a focused inspection of a damage site. Right. Um, if those things were finished, the analysts would fly home. We don't right. need them anymore. We can fly right. them back if we need right. to. Right. But the ops team would stay there and make sure that the rest of the mission was right. was going going smoothly. So it would start with roughly six, and then it would would go to three. Um, for certain missions, there were other activities that NEPTEC was involved with. Sometimes that means that there was a totally separate team on a different technology, and sometimes there would be some cross-pollination of supporting sure. shifts and things sure. like that. Sure. Uh, I was one of the the few people that was trained to do both the analysis role and the operations okay. role, which meant that I had, in a way, uh, twice as much opportunity to go down for missions because right. I could support both teams. And I generally preferred operations because that's kind of where you're more in the thick of it in terms yes. of you know the ongoing activity of the space shuttle and where yes. you have to go on a daily basis to the orbiter project office meeting and, and hear the ongoing challenges of the, of the shuttle and, and, and program, which are really interesting. But the analysis part... Is, is really cool too, in the sense that you're the one that is taking the output of this sensor. And in yes. this case, it's it's a point cloud, a three-dimensional picture yeah. of damage. And you have to use a software tool that was created custom by our company yeah. to calculate how big that damage is and then pass that on to other engineers, you right. know, the ones that designed the thermal protection who, system. Who, who probably have some questions. Who have some questions. <laughs> and, and they are then going to make a determination, you know, how much that area would heat up. Right. And, and furthermore, what's you know the substructure of the of the shuttle would experience, and right. ultimately that's what they are, are used to make a determination right. if this damage is so severe that it needs to be right. repaired, or the shuttle can come home. And I and I again that didn't happen very often, but the second last mission ever, I, I was working you know that that role, and and there was damage, and we did that inspection, right. and I made that calculation. Right. And you know I made the calculation in parallel and completely isolated from me. A colleague made it. Yes. We both made the same thing, and we had to compare our numbers, and then right. you know they had to be the same within three decimals. And once yeah. they were, we handed that on to, to NASA, right. and we were confident that the this, the damage wasn't so big that, or we gave them the number. We were confident yeah. about it. They decided that it was safe. That yeah, because the they, they analyzed it. Both. Th- that's that, right. I remember the uh, same. The time, I think it was the same, uh, it was somebody from the media, same reporter would ask me about a boring day in space when there wasn't a boring day in space and the, the shuttle was coming home. So after there'd been some damage, they right. said, you know, shuttle's coming home at, at 5 a.m. or something, you're getting up to watch the landing. And I, I was genuinely surprised at the question. I said, no. She said, but the damage, aren't you worried? I said, no. The mm-hmm. reason that we fly our system and the reason we do all that right. work is so nobody has to worry yeah. tomorrow. Yeah. Before you would have had to worry. Sure. The, the, and and I think that's the other thing is that a lot of people haven't worked in the worked in the mission control don't understand it's that problem will have been analyzed. Oh, to death. To death. It's unbelievable. They spend thousands of person hours for every little thing. Yes. And uh, you know if something if there's a little small problem and and you know they say what what could happen and you know you come back and there's all this analysis and say you know it really can't happen and then they say. Okay, but what if it does? And then you analyze that to death and then on and on and on. Yeah. Um, It's amazing how much analysis you can get done in 24 hours when you have lots of people working on. Yes. And it it costs a lot of money, but, you know, ultimately it's it's the safety of the crew that's at stake. Right. right? And they and they they take it very seriously and they're really good at it. 
So, so now the space shuttle, one of the features of the space shuttle, it was not something that um, you could reliably expect to launch when it said it was going to, That's unfortunately. Correct. Yeah. So was there ever a time when you upstakes moved to Houston expecting to work on a mission and arrived there only to find that it wasn't going when it was supposed to? Yeah, yeah. It, it doesn't always happen. Sometimes if, if you get a, what they call a launch scrub, you know, you find out about that in time to say, okay, well, I'll change my flight and fly down right. when it's time. But every once in a while, you'd be on that f- first shift and you'd basically already aborted and, and taken off and there was a last minute scrub. Right. And then sometimes you would land and you'd find out and you'd just fly home because it was going right. to be another week. But right. very rarely they would say, it's a small problem. It's just a sensor. We know there's nothing wrong. We're going we're gonna to refuel in two days and launch again. Or, or it was a weather problem. That's right, or weather. So you just say, okay, so you're going again in, you know, 28, 48 hours or something. <clears throat> and actually... You know, an interesting story is that the first mission that I was selected to be on console alone, the first time I would be sitting there and, and you know, no one would be there to support me or, right. you know, not, not, not right beside me, um, was one of these times. And so I landed in Houston and it was a, it was a Friday night and I found out, you know, instead of the shuttle being up there, it was still on the ground in, in Florida and it wouldn't be going until Monday. And so I thought to myself, wow, this is exciting. I, you know, I've only been down in Texas a couple of times in my life because I'm new at the company and I'm through this whole weekend. I'm getting paid just to be here. I, you know, what am I going to do? And I, I got the great idea that I would drive to Austin on Saturday and, and check out that, that town because right. I'd, I'd never been there. Sure. And so I, I, you know, I took off in my rental car and had a great day, you know, walking around the town and seeing art galleries and the football stadium and whatever. And when I got back to my car to, to, to drive back to Houston, I kind of looked around and realized, actually, I got back to my car. Where's my car? And I couldn't find my car. And turns out I'd parked in a valley zone and they'd, they'd towed my car. And that set off a, a series of very interesting events because I, you know, I had to start taking cabs around town to some, you know, sketchy impound lot in the suburbs sure. where, sure. you know, lots of bulletproof glass and signs sure. about guns everywhere. And nice. spoke to a gentleman there who, who basically said, you know, um, I need to see the ownership of the car and right. I need to see, but it's a rental car, but so. it's a rental car. And I don't know. So I said, all right, fine. You know what? You can keep the car. Just let me in there. Um, and, and he said, no, you know, you're not getting over this bolt, this, this fence with barbed wire. And the problem was that in my naivety, I had thought, oh, you know, leaving things in the hotel room in Houston, right. Right. that might not be safe. Um, so I better take my backpack with me, right. my backpack, which has the laptop that right. I need to support right. mission control. Right. Oh, and also in there, is the badge yes, that I need to get in right. to Mission Control. Right. And furthermore, my passport, which yes. would allow me to go and get a replacement badge, badge if I lost my badge. Right. So all of these things are locked behind right. lots of barbed wire and bulletproof right. glass and right. a man that is not very helpful right. to me. Right. And you know, to make a long story short, I, I spent a crazy two days uh, in Austin doing everything I can, right. first of all, to find a place to stay during a, right. a, a really busy music festival. Right. And, and then ultimately you know, calling my colleagues saying, you know, I'm in a lot of trouble. Um, <laughs> I called a call uh, some, on my first mission. On my first, I called, uh, you've given me yeah. all of this responsibility that's right. and this is what I've done with it. I yeah. called a colleague of mine in, who is in, in Florida working on the space shuttle. And that's why I was at this mission alone because right. there was other activities going on there. And, right. and I called him and he, he's French Canadian. And I, and there's a funny story where, you know, he, he re, like across the dinner, dinner table where he was chatting with another colleague, he, sure. he was just said, hello, you. And then he <laughs> listens for a while and then he puts the phone down across to his other colleague and says, What's impounded? <laughs> and uh, then they knew I was in trouble. But anyway, the, a, a really nice uh, woman at the budget airport in Austin. Yes. 
and a, a notary public that would drive across the state, right. signed a document saying I owned the vehicle, which I didn't. Yes. And even after more shenanigans, uh, she ended up driving across town at the end of her shift and, and drove my car out of him out really? of clock um, and gave yeah. it back to me. And I made it back to my shift on Monday on schedule. You know, my boss didn't have to come off their holiday right. and, and support and everything worked out. But for a while there, it was touch and go. And I, I really thought I had lost my job. Wow. Wow. So, well, I, I don't know that there's many MCC stories that can top that. So let's talk about something else, though, that, that does, in some ways, top working in Michigan Control. And that's what, what NASA refers to as the in-vehicle test. And you did a mm-hmm. number of those, including some that were pretty interesting. So, so yeah. what's an in-vehicle test, first of all? Um, it Basically, you know, you build hardware, in our case, you know, a laser camera, we, we send it down to to Florida and, and the NASA folks integrate it with the, you know, the, the candid arm, or in this case, a boom that the candid arm holds an extension of the candid arm. And then before we launch this to space, we, we say, well, let's make sure that we put it on correctly and that yes. everything is still working. And so we actually go down and there's a series of tests. We test um, the way the, the configuration is, is that you have to test different parts of the interfaces and, and validate them. And it's pretty straightforward. You just want to turn on the system and make sure it works and things like that. But because of the, the complexity of, of the, the cannon arm and, and the shuttle in our system, one of the tests we had to do for each launch was actually on the launch pad. We had yes. to only wait and do this when, when the system was there. So the space shuttle is upright. You know, it's not down on its wheels. It's, yes. it's up on its, uh, you know, held in place as if it's going to launch. And they have what's called a, a rotating service structure, which is basically um, a big room that, that rotates. That's, you know, many stories high. Right and covers up the whole space shuttle to protect it and also to allow access into the payload bay. So, so you're, it feels like you're in a 15-story building, but you're actually that, in the space shuttle. That's right. And, you know, there's there's stairs within it, and it's all kept in a clean environment, right, because they don't want foreign object debris. They don't want contamination. Do you have to wear a bunny suit when you're working? You have to wear a full bunny suit, booties. Uh, in my case, at the time, you know, I had to wear a beard cover. Sure. Um, and I had my glasses, so I felt completely – it was like I'm scuba diving. I was completely right, covered. Right. I had to even put a little tiny strip of Kapton tape over my iron ring, my engineering ring. Um, No pencils, of course, because, you know, pieces of lead could fall and get in things. Uh, All your pens had to be tethered to the binders. Yes. So, you know, very strict protocol and environment. And again, usually a simple test. So there was one time where I showed up and as much as it's simple, there's myself, um, a colleague, two people to do the test and work together. There's a a NASA QA person. Um, There's usually a NASA another person that's kind of the payload specialist. And yes. I think maybe someone else that's just there to kind of oversee you on the right. pad. I'm not sure. There's right. maybe a team of five. Right. And we were there one day and we'd, we'd arrived probably in the afternoon. I'm not sure. Cause it's 24 hour activity there leading yes. up to a launch. We were only days from launch. Yes. And, uh, and, and that, I mean, literally every hour of activity is yes. scheduled, right? Oh, absolutely. It, it, it needs to be because it, you know, if one thing slips, everything slips and suddenly the launch slips and you know, guess what? That, that doesn't, that doesn't go well with the top management, right? No. No. Um, nor, nor the astronauts who are, you know, in quarantine or whatever, yes. waiting to go up. Yes. Um, so we're there one day and, and we're about to power up the system, but we haven't quite done it. And over the loudspeaker in this in this facility comes this announcement. That, you know, I don't remember the exact terminology, something like you know, class C lightning warning. And I kind of scratched my head. I don't know what that means. But one of the NASA folks kind of jumped up and, and basically ran out of the facility. <laughs> and then moments later, there was the next announcement, which was, you know, class D lightning warning, which basically meant, we were on lockdown and, you know, right. here we are on this massive metal structure yes. that's standing up in a perfectly, you know, a state where the highest elevation of sea level yes. is 100 meters, which yes. is far, far, far from us. Um, we're basically in a massive lightning tower and 
you know, with all this electrical equipment. So guess what? We're not testing and we're not allowed to leave, which is this external gantry. You know, you're, right. you're outside to right. take this elevator down to, to ground level. And the NASA guy knew what was coming, which is why he rushed out of there. But, you know, we were we didn't know. And so I ended up having to be stuck there, I think, all told from when I got there and and then the lightning, you know, the delay for lightning and then actually getting everyone back and doing the test was something like 14 hours. Wow. So I'm lying there, you know, in my bunny suit. It's it's, you know, perfectly air conditioned, climate controlled room with room with all these buzzing sounds and not a good environment to sleep. But, you know, even at the time I was kind of looking around myself going, you know, this is pretty sweet. You know, I'm. I'm, I'm inches from the canned arm. Yeah, now that I have a minute to think about where I am. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, so some time to reflect and say, you know, this is one of humanity's greatest feats of engineering. Yeah. You know, it's it's carrying – there's a piece of the space station that's going to go up soon. Right. And here's the space shuttle that gets the astronauts there. Yes. And here I am, you know, getting paid, and at this point probably time and a half to, to – right you know, go to sleep if I can, which I can't, but yeah. that's kind of okay. Well, uh, I remember the first time I did uh, an IBT, which was on the ground. So when, when the, the shuttle was, was flat on its wheels, but uh, we spent the day, it was a 12 or 14 hour day doing all of the testing. Uh, and then when it came time to leave the closeout crew, the, the, the NASA JSC folks had a bunch of things they needed to do to shut the mm-hmm. space shuttle up. So they couldn't escort me back uh, out of the, out of the vehicle. So I had to sit, I basically was sitting in the in the mid deck, uh, the middle part of the space shuttle, uh, where the crew lives effectively when they're on orbit. And I'm sitting on in a bunny suit in essentially what's like a gym mat because mm-hmm. they cover the space shuttle in mats when when it's uh, on the ground. And I and sitting literally with my you know lying against the side of the space shuttle with nothing to do, same as you. And then I remember sitting there and very similarly sitting there and thinking, wow, in a month's time. What I am lying against is going to be the only thing between five human beings and the vacuum of space. And, uh, you know, it kind of stops you cold. You spend the day literally 12 hours doing nothing but following the procedure, doing, you know, changing the switches, recording the data, analyzing, you know, the issue, moving to the next step. And and it, to me, it, it often felt when I worked on the, the space shuttle, it felt like working in the simulator. Yeah. It, it was it was just something I was very used to doing. And then when you get a minute to think about what you're doing, you suddenly realize, yeah, this this isn't a normal job. Yeah. Well, you hear similar stories about astronauts who are so busy on a spacewalk uh, up there hours into it, and then they get uh, a message from Houston saying, hey, we need to check something. So, you know, take a pause. And they get to kind of spin their neck around and or their body around, I guess, and, and look down to Earth, say, and yeah. – and kind of get a wow moment, right? Yeah. And I think all of us in the industry, I mean, and, you know, this is apt for the name of the show, Terranauts, you know, I think we all get moments where we can can realize that we are part of that, that exploration. Right. We are part of that process. And it it's a pretty profound feeling. You know, you, yeah. you know you're part of it and you're helping and you're helping, you know, humanity push these limits. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think it's really exciting that with all the new stuff that's coming up in space, including here in Canada, we're going to give those opportunities to feel those same thing to many new Canadians over the, yeah. the next couple of decades, which yeah. is great. I, I'm going to apologize in advance to listeners. We're sitting in a room. You and I are actually doing this face-to-face. There's a, an exhaust fan that comes on. I, I'm not sure whether you guys can hear it in the background, but if you can, I apologize. We'll just have to do our best mission control thing and work through the, the problem. That's right. Uh, so that was working on the space shuttle and the space station program. But but now you've done done something even more 
ambitious, uh, started your own business. So uh, tell me about that. Yeah, Mission Control. Um, you know, aptly named, I like to think. Uh, it, we are a space exploration robotics company uh, with a focus on, on mission operations, uh, onboard autonomy, and, and AI. Okay. And So what does that mean um, in, in terms of other people? Understand? It means that we create software. To, yeah. to operate and automate system, robotic assets and autonomous systems deployed in harsh and remote environments. Okay. Really a software focus, uh, some application specific and also software architecture and framework to let other people develop So What's a robotic asset in this context? Um, I guess, in a sense, anything. I mean, people tend to think of a robot as being a humanoid something, a C-3PO right. Or, right. or an R2-D2 or something, or they... Right. Think of maybe a rover, uh, but really, the, you know, in the next phase of exploration that we're moving into right now, for instance, you know, going back to the moon, uh, there's going to be a significant amount of what we call robotic exploration. So that that could be simply a lander. It can be a lander with a, a drill and a camera and a spectrometer and other systems. Uh, all of those, you know, have certain elements of autonomy, can do things by themselves, right. and all of them also need to be interact with, inter- interface with from the ground. And so there's common elements of software for all those, and, and some of those are the things that we try to create. So why did you decide to uh, start your own business? What possessed you? Yeah. <laughs> well, I guess at the time I had, I was really lucky, you know, having a chance to work at NAPTEC, especially right after school. So, you know, I, I started working on the space shuttle and, and space station programs. Uh, after the shuttle retired, I actually got a chance to be designing rovers for the Canadian Space Agency. Right. And it, for a while there, it looked like Canada was going to provide a rover for a NASA mission. We were going to go to the south pole of the moon and, and prove that there's water there. And so I was working on rovers for that, working closely with NASA, really exciting. And then that opportunity kind of went away. Right. And suddenly I found myself in a position where I've had a chance to do some of the greatest things that an engineer could ever do in their career. And, you know, kind of left with, well, what do I do next? How do I top this? And I'd also gone and done a program called the International Space University. Yes. I'd, I'd kind of reinvigorated my... my it's another classic Terranaut move. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And so, I, you know, I'd reminded myself that, you know, school's not that bad and it's exciting to learn new things and, and start new new things. And I then did a program uh, at Carleton University, a graduate degree in, in technology innovation management, right. which is a little bit like an MBA, but more focused on entrepreneurship and innovation. Oh, and their, their tagline is... Uh, a degree in one hand, a technology startup in the other. Right. So here I am, you know, learning how to te- start a technology company. Um, a, a little bit, kind of feeling, okay, I've I've done my thing at NapTech, and then also always been someone that you know likes to to kind of do things a certain way and and have my own ideas about how things right. should be done. Right. And you know, if you want to do things a certain way. And, and kind of guide how a company strategically yes. operates. You know, there's really only one spot yes, for you. Be, being the and owner is the right job. That's right. right. And so, it, and it's hard to you know be promoted into that. Yes. <laughs> so yes. I kind of realized, well, this is a perfect storm, you know. And right. and um, and so I decided to do that, and I, I left Neptech and started kind of working on that. And the very first thing I did is I reached out to my network and, and sp- some specific people and said, hey, you know, I, I'm going to do this. Who who wants to join? Me? Yeah, right. And and, and pull the team around me. And then it's that team that that's you know that's created this um, right. what we've done so far. Right. And and when was that that you formed Mission Control? We were we were formally incorporated on March thirty first, two thousand and fifteen. Right. So we're we're coming up on our fifth birthday. Yeah. yeah. And how's it going? 
I'd say it's going great. You know, um, you're still here. We're still here. You know, which is you know exciting. Um, we're actually moving into a new facility in a few months. Um, right. We are. Uh, it was just announced recently that we'll be developing uh, a new technology for the Canadian Space Agency. So you're going to the moon. And we're going to the moon. Um, you know, that's the plan. Uh, the phase of this contract is is simply to advance the technology readiness level. Right. But the hope would be certainly that that if things go well. And under the, the new funding that's available called, under the Lunar Exploration Accelerator Program, we would hope that, that this technology would, would get a chance to go there, you know, and provide some cutting edge science and also hopefully some, you know, inspiration for, for all Canadians. Well, and, and more to the point in your, your business is, is growing. How many people do you have working here now? There's 13 now. Um, right. There's a few a few part-time and always a few co-ops in that mix. Right. So it works out to a little bit less so, in terms of full-time equivalent. But, so, yeah. so whatever else you're creating, you're creating a bunch of new paradigms. Yeah, is, absolutely. And, and we're actually going to be hiring a lot over the coming year. So we're going to, we're going to keep growing. And, uh, you know, like I said, that's a great opportunity for, for Canadians to be involved in this. All right. Well, it's been really fascinating talking and, and I've enjoyed reminiscing about some stuff that I, uh, that was important to me in, in my uh, career as a Terranaut as well. Thanks for being on Terranauts. Thanks Ian. I really appreciate the opportunity. Well, that's a wrap for this episode of Terranauts. Thanks for joining us. A reminder that you can now find Terranauts on iTunes and other podcatcher apps for iOS and Android. Please consider subscribing and leaving a review. If you have comments on the episode, you can email us at podcast at spaceq.ca. We read and answer all of your comments in a timely fashion. You can also find SpaceQ on Twitter at Canada in Space and on Facebook. Thanks again for listening and join us again next time when we'll go to space without ever leaving the planet. Talk to you then. Come on, let's keep the chatter down. <laughs>